I've just checked the Sports Journalism Awards shortlist, and right. your, your name isn't there. That's irritating, because no. that would have been an amazing exclusive. Yeah, that was. I don't think that was going to be likely, to be honest, at this stage. Well, there's still you... time. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would have been great, but I, to be honest, I think that uh, it's still a little bit early in my career for that, in terms of, I think most of the people that I've seen on the lists, they work regularly for, for, for nationals, whereas I'm sort of still freelance, which is a shame, but... We'll see, we'll, see where, we'll see where that goes in the future. Well, as I've learned in this book, what you wrote, it's not about the prizes. It's about uh, like the soft power and learning yes. about Bobby Robson in your book, Black and White Nights, which as we, as we speak is not yet out, but when this goes out, will be out. Is it the 15th it comes out? Yes. So it's out, as you listen to this, today, because I've timed it perfectly, but we're speaking on the 18th, of February it's a Champions League week European football is back Newcastle are not in it do you mind that Newcastle aren't back in Europe and is it do Newcastle know their place now uh, um, do I mind uh, yes of course I mind I wish that, that Newcastle were were building on the foundations that Bobby left um, but they have made uh, countless number of errors over the, the sort of what is it now 17 years since he since he was uh, unceremoniously sacked as manager Newcastle as a club uh, you, you could say it depends what you measure a big club as because if you measure it on titles won then Newcastle don't really have much of a say in, in terms of a place at the table but the club that the potential that everything that Bobby stood for when he was when he was manager of Newcastle and stood for generally is, is very much true. The potential he spoke about when he came to Newcastle United and the potential he is probably the last person to fulfil that potential in the club, if you like. And, you know, I think it would have been difficult for Newcastle to be in the Champions League. I think everyone accepts that now because the way football isn't the same. Uh, I write in the book that Bobby managed to make Newcastle Champions League contenders without spending £10 million on one, on one footballer, which would be impossible now given what we know about Man City who come in Chelsea have come in and the one that are Liverpool are as strong as they are again and you still got Manchester United in there as well and, and all and all the rest of it Everton Leicester there's so many more clubs that are involved in that race now that it's difficult I don't think anybody really expects Newcastle to be in the Champions League but just aiming towards that and trying something would be better than, than what they've got currently yeah, I'm trying to make this an optimistic show because it's very easy to spend an hour going, oh, Mike Ashley, isn't he a insert expletive? Because that, yeah. nothing nothing good will come of that. I mean, there is a proviso to what you've just said. Newcastle did have a player signed for over £10 million. And I would posit that Alan Shearer is Bobby Robson's representative on earth. In a sense, I guess that the, the way that Bobby's career started at Newcastle sort of is central to, to, to Alan and, and what happened because of when he stepped in, he, he, his share was, was going nowhere. He said himself his career was floundering. He would have had to have left Newcastle because of what happened with Ruth Hullett, not just being left out of that Sunderland game, but uh, which is where the book starts, but also just the way he was treated in that era, the the, the relationship he had with Hullet, the relationship Hullet had with 
senior players like uh, Rob Lee as well, Duncan Ferguson, Stupis, John Barnes, who were both left by the time Bobby came in. It's fitting in a sense that that, that, that Alan is now a, a patron of the foundation that Bobby has, uh, that Bobby set up for cancer research, and um, their, their relationship was not not always um, sunshine and roses, but. You would expect that from a player like Shearer, who's as, who's as experienced as he is, and a man like Sir Bobby, who's as experienced as he is. You know, they work together brilliantly. It would have been interesting to see if um, if Bobby had managed to get into Barcelona when he first tried to sign him, when he signed for Newcastle in '96. Uh, but it, you know, he, he didn't do too badly out of that deal when he got Ronaldo instead. So <laughs> you mentioned Ronaldo, um, and I will pick up that thread. I think. Uh, because I, I spoke to Troy Deeney for my book, which I'm not here to plug, but it does exist. Um, and I asked Troy, who was your hero growing up? He said, well, that's simple. It was R9. And everyone forgets, because we didn't have Twitter or, or YouTube, that, and I was too young to know it, but when the original Ronaldo, the Phenomeno Ronaldo, burst on, it's, the, the comparisons to Kylian Mbappe seem legitimate, not just because of stance and speed, but... It was almost as if Phenomeno Ronaldo was a different kind of player. And we saw that, I imagine you remember the World Cup final in 2002, which was the Ronaldo final. As a, I mean, he was a different player by then, Ronaldo. And that, and that tournament, I mean, for me, he's the best striker that ever lived. I worshipped him in that 2002 World Cup. I remember being a kid, wanting so badly to have that shirt with Ronaldo's name on it. Because it was the redemption of him, because of not only what happened with his injuries being out for two years prior to that, but also the, what happened in the 98 final with the seizure that he had, the convulsion that he had before, which kind of wrote him off. I know he played, but it wrote him off for, for making any sort of impact in that game. And it, it threw Brazil off completely as well. Ronaldo at Barcelona reminds me very, or Mbappe now reminds me very much of Ronaldo at Barcelona in that he's... I think the description, if you've seen more than a manager of the Bob Robson documentary, if you haven't, it would be a great thing to watch because he describes Ronaldo so brilliantly in terms of got the weight of a middleweight boxer. He's quick, he's this, he's that. And he he is just this sort of like that that Ronaldo. Like his game evolved, he changed, he, he developed because of injuries like so many players do. And he still owned the world. He was a, It was his second coming when he did what he did in 2002. The Barcelona version of Ronaldo, I would actually suggest if he played like that for his entire career, we wouldn't even be discussing Messi as the greatest player of all time. Mm. If Ronaldo, if that Ronaldo had lasted for 10 years, there wouldn't be a question. He was he was absolutely incredible. And that was Bobby. And the, the way that if you talk about relationships, it says so much about Ronaldo and Bobby, I guess, as well, that... They kept in touch, and Ronaldo was involved in that documentary I mentioned as well. He spoke about Bobby in English, which is something that he wasn't particularly comfortable doing. He's met Bobby's family. He's met Mark, his son, who's involved heavily in my book as well. And Mark is very impressed with him as well. So there's a there's a love and respect from Ronaldo, who, as I've said, is probably in that season. That is the greatest season I've seen from an individual player in my life. Even though I was too young to remember it, at the yeah. time I've seen. I, you know, I, I've, worked, I've gone back and watched the videos, and I, I, I can't think of a better player in, a, in an individual season than that. And yet, he still remembers Bobby in the way he does, and that speaks volumes about 
their relationship and, and both men. Yeah, it seems very similar to what Cristiano Ronaldo has towards Alex Ferguson. There's definitely a father figure dynamic. I didn't watch more than a manager which is um, the biopic. I actually wrote at the top of my notes, why no Netflix doc about Bobby Robson? It's because there was a film that came out uh, two, two, three years ago. I think I read about it. I imagine because George Colkin wrote about it. And uh, George does the foreword to your book, Black and White Night, which is out today, published by Pitch Publishing, but of course. But before we, we talk about your book in depth, I do want to give you as the 101st recipient as we speak the football library laminated card it's got a shushing brian glanville on it although of course you can change to have a more newcastle centric um library card are you happy with brian glanville the doyen of football criticism who, who else is the, who, who else could I possibly have? Could I have Bobby, and that would be more fitting for Egg, perhaps. But I'm happy with Brian Glanville if that's what if that's what you, you, I'm given. Yeah, you're welcome to have Bob. You could also have Martin Hardy, who now writes for the Sunday Times. He is the yeah, every like. every piece Martin writes. It's kind of dripping in just despair. It, even when Newcastle yeah. win, it's it's almost. I imagine if this could happen every week, but there is a, a trilogy of yeah. books. On De Cubitan. I've, I've read the first two of them. Uh, Touching Distance 2015, Tunnel of Love 2016, and Raffa's Way 2017. And this trilogy of books is, the trilogy is, but the books are, subs, in the football library, uh, as well as memoirs by Kevin Keegan, Craig Bellamy, Kieran Dyer. We'll, we'll touch on Bellamy later but I just wanted to ask you you're one of the writers it's your your book will go alongside Martin Hardy's books um have you read or met you must you have met Martin Hardy surely in the press box yeah yeah I I see him um well pre pre in pre-lockdown terms yes. week in week out Newcastle games and and he, he also covers Sheffield United from time to time where where I can be found as well um so I know Martin I um I read I read uh his books for recreation, but also then for research as and, and help with mine. And he's he is very good. He's very you know you write in that everything he, he writes is is sort of tinged with despair because everything with Newcastle United is tinged with despair because he grew up and covered probably as well uh, Newcastle at much greater times. And that coming onto my book, the reason why I've done this Bobby Robson book, it's only sort of slightly touched on in uh, Tunnel of Love by Martin as part of the journey between the post-Keegan era and the relegation in 2009, whereas I focus purely on those five years. The reason I've done that is because for a generation of people, including myself, you know, late 20s, early 30s, might not remember the Keegan years and therefore the Bobby years are the one thing that they grab onto is to remember the club that they knew. Going back to the first question, should Newcastle be in the Champions League? As I mentioned, it's so difficult now. But back then, he he made it look easy and he galvanised the club in a way that makes it so exciting. It made it so exciting to follow them. And I can understand why Martin writes the way he does and everything. And he harks back to the Keegan years and to the Bobby years, uh, particularly Keegan playing and Keegan managing the first time, because that was that that's what. Newcastle supporters tend to remember their, of their club and the fact that Keegan is no longer welcome, particularly 
at, at Newcastle. He doesn't feel welcome. He is after the second spell he has manager, which he doesn't even count in his own head. If you listened and read to the read the uh, interview that Alan Shearer did yeah. in the Athletic, yeah, really, really good, really good insight there. You don't need me to tell you. You don't need Martin to tell you. You, don't, you just need to listen to people like like Kevin talk, like Shearer talk, like Bobby talk on on videos and interviews about what the club meant to them to really understand why people think Newcastle are, are not in the right place. Um, they act like a small club, so they are a small club, I guess you could say. If you look at clubs like even Bournemouth, I know Bournemouth are in the Championship now, but they've made better strides than Newcastle have in recent years to, to improve themselves and right and now. And it, it, that, that's quite sad. With regard to Bournemouth, the rumours are today that Thierry Henry... Uh, or as I call him, Cherry Henri. Cherry on. Please try and use the hashtag Cherry Henri. Um, <laughs> uh, it's going to take over at Bournemouth. Whereas uh, Newcastle's manager is a hometown hero, grew up as a Newcastle fan, uh, and yet nobody likes what Steve Bruce is doing. Is it because people see him as just a, a patsy for the owner, whom we're not going to mention? I don't know if it's as if it's as simplistic as that. I think a lot of the thing about Steve Bruce is that you know a lot of people on the outside. What frustrates Newcastle fans? A lot of people on the outside have said, "Oh, he's a Geordie. He's this. He's a nice guy as well," which is kind of strange. You know, every, that, very similar ways that people spoke about Bobby actually. But the difference between Steve Bruce and Sir Bobby Robson is Bobby Robson delivered uh, a team and, a, and results and a club that was to be proud of. Steve Bruce has seen, is struggling for results. That's the very first thing. The football is not very good. That's the second thing. But also he is sort of seen as, I guess, sort of vindicating the owner's way of doing things, vindicating, you know, Newcastle, scrambling for mid If you hear Steve Bruce talk about it, it's not all his fault. He is not, he does not have any defence from the club. Nobody is there speaking on his behalf or backing him up. He is there. He's the only face of the club. No one in the boardroom is making any effort to communicate with anybody in any way. So it's down to him. So in that sense, you've got to feel sorry for him. But uh, he doesn't cover himself in glory because he talks about the club in mid-table, in survival terms, basically in the way that they are currently, whereas Bobby Keegan and more directly relevant, I guess, Rafa Benitez spoke about the club in, in terms of potential, in terms of, you know, striving. And when I talk about, what you know, realistic ambitions, Benitez never spoke about qualifying for the Champions League. It's just not as simple as we're going to qualify for the Champions League in the, in the way that it was even in Bobby's time, because it, it's just so much more congested at the top of the Premier League now. He was talking in terms of top eight, in terms of, you know, maybe a cup run, you know, fulfilling that potential in different ways, whereas you very rarely hear Bruce talk about anything other than survival and getting to a certain point, which is not what Newcastle's all about. So it's a, it's a, it's a culmination of things that people don't like about Steve Bruce. It's not all his fault, but at the same time, when he came in, he's replaced, He's a manager that had, that had not managed in the Premier League for four or five years, had last been relegated from the Premier League, had been relegated before with Hull City, had been relegated before with Birmingham City. Had, uh, statistically, I know he's managed so many games, so that you've got to take that into, into account. 
was statistically the worst win ratio in Premier League's history. And he's replacing a Champions League winner. His procedure's going backwards, so he's on the back foot from then. But at the same time, he hasn't covered himself in glory, as I've mentioned, no, since. I, I do... Well, I know Newcastle will stay up this season because I think there are three worst teams and three struggling teams. Uh, I'm glad that Almiron um, is justifying his fee. Um, the, the story of the season, however, is Lascelles, club captain Lascelles. Uh, I mean, he's a, he's a player that a lot of Newcastle fans would say has regressed from the Benitez era. Oh, okay. um, because he came in as captain, having uh, the club was, was in, a, in a strange state with with um, where in the last relegation when Benitez was here in 2016, when the club was solid in terms of the ability that they had, that was good enough to stay up, but. Their, their attitude, their motivation, the mentality of the squad was was poor, and Lascelles called that out after a game against Southampton. Mm-hmm. As a young lad, didn't really have the in, in terms of squad status, didn't really have the right to do that. And I don't mean that in a criticism. No, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And then in the summer after the clear out and, the, and Benitez gets gets back to basics, he relies on Lascelles. Lascelles is a very good captain. I think Lascelles is a a key player, but but he has. He has, I think a lot of people would say he's regressed. You mentioned Almiron. Among the uh, fan favourites because of his attitude, again, you know, if you compare that to what I just mentioned in 2016, it's, it's like chalk and cheese. He doesn't complain whenever he's asked to play. He's enthusiastic. He's always smiling. He's also um, very, very effective in the right position as well. Which, which is all you really need to be for to to impress Newcastle fans. But there's just something about him that's very that's very lovable. And even when he was, you know, struggling at the start, I mean, a lot of people. The narrative around Almiron is that he's finally justifying his fee, and he had that long spell where he didn't score a goal or assist a goal. And I understand from the outside it'll be difficult to then say that he's been a success. But to me, he was doing exactly what he's doing on the pitch in terms of his performances. He just wasn't scoring or assisting any goals. Finally, he's doing that, and it's great to see the fact that he that he is justifying as you said his price tag, but also getting the, the the respect and the adulation that he kind of deserves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, he came he came from Atlanta, where he was really really well received. Um, yeah, and and I think it's the ML Heskey problem. It's the stats don't show it, but if you're a workmate or if you're at the club. You do see how important players like that is. I just wanted to talk about Lascelles in terms of the fact that he missed half the season with um, long corona, uh, much like Alan yeah. Maximan. Are they both up to 100% yeah. now? Yeah, in terms of... I see what you mean in terms of the story. Yeah, I guess that, that will... Especially if Newcastle go, do end up going down, people will look at that long stretch without two key players and, and suggest perhaps maybe more could be done, you know, more could have been done to alleviate the pressure in those in those in that spell, and, and and it's difficult to imagine. It's difficult to see where that was coming from because you don't expect. You know, I guess it was kind of proof that you know, even for footballers, that, that, that this virus that we're all sort of battling with, and, and in so many different ways, it, it isn't just a cold that, that the fittest the footballers can get over in, in ten days because both of in terms of mentality and quality, it probably hit Newcastle's arguably two of their key players, as, as, as you alluded to. 
this is a really, it's a horrible season. And also for you as a writer, you freelance for Eurosport and for the Morning Star. Although, although as we'll come on to, it has helped you as a, as a writer and to do your job. But this season will have a massive asterisk next to it. Even if my team, Watford, do end up going back up. Uh, and in fact, Watford's third choice emergency reserve reserve goalkeeper has a Newcastle connection. What are we going to get yeah. with Rob Elliott? Um, I like Rob Elliott as a, as, a, as a guy. I think he's a good keeper when he plays for Newcastle. Just, it's been so long since he played for Newcastle. Um, he was a better servant than I think anybody expected him to be when he came in from Charlton. I think people just expect him to be the third choice and stay for a couple of years and then get shipped off to a, to a championship club or a league one club or whatever. But he actually came in at key moments. There was a point where Tim Krull was injured when he was number one four or five years ago, maybe now, that he, he really impressed in that string and kept, kept somewhat kept the club sort of glued together. Then he got injured. There was a real goalkeeping crisis after that. And he also bought into the into the area as well, which is, is always something that will always make you popular with Newcastle fans. So you're going to get a, a solid goalkeeper if I, if he's still up to the to the, to the standards that he was before. I think Rafa Benitez certainly did did like him and and, and trusted him at different times. I know he, he ended up favouring Caldarlo in the Championship, but there was a point where. I think if if Elliot doesn't get injured, there's a point, there's, an, there's a way to argue that he he starts that season and, and 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 is the number one in that year, and that would have been absolutely fine. So I looked at that and thought that's a great move for Watford, especially given that he's picking up him up for nothing after leaving Newcastle. I don't think he's going to be playing too much for for you, but when he does, he'll be solid. And also, he's a he's a good dependable player to have in the squad, and those people. And that sort of aspect, and it sort of seems like a, a cop out, but actually, I think that's quite quite key. And I think you know it's going to be it, it, it's a good move, and I'm and I'm pleased for him that he's got some someone as high up as, as Watford who who and he could be back as a Premier League player. Albert probably not playing very much, but he'll be back as a Premier League player next season if if all goes well. Yeah, and he's also a magic word quota. I mean, it's mid February. I think Swansea, Norwich, Bournemouth have a better squad. But um, Watford, are, I, I saw that you were at Newcastle Watford. To, was it last season or two? It was when Javi was still manager. It was last season. And this was in the yeah, yeah the depth of the era. And um, the, the line that leapt out at me from Newcastle in the last few years was, if Rafa goes, we go. And people have gone. And it's nothing yeah. to do with Steve Bruce. It's to do with the ownership uh, you you cover the club, you know the atmosphere, and I know the True Faith fanzine is very outspoken about it. I think it also has. To, were you covering the story of the takeover, the Stavely takeover? Yes, I, I was at the the very first go. I was at the very heart of it with all the geopolitics and that sort of thing, which I didn't enjoy, and I don't particularly enjoy that storyline because of uh, first of all the, the human rights thing that's questionable. Uh, it needs to be. Uh, my my stance was that, that while it doesn't necessarily have to derail the takeover completely, I think it'd be silly to just ignore that factor, and you would have to talk about it. But also, it dragged on for so long, and became just it, it, it had a life of its own in terms of taking twists and turns. 
it wasn't particularly fun uh, to cover after the initial burst of excitement that came through in about April time everyone was really excited then by about May it was just that sort of fatigue and fatigue is what I would describe what it's been like to follow Newcastle for for most of the last you know decade and a half and it was be- and it was perhaps best summed up by that because that felt like it was a, it was a a key out a, 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 a ticket out of what what this difficult spell has been for Newcastle fans but eventually it just dragged on to the point where I think people and it's still dragging on in the background now not so much you know in the foreground as it was but it's still dragging on and people are just desperate for a, a, a positive conclusion to it yeah and and seeing what um, reporters like Miggy Delaney have gone through it's just brutal it's it's very symptomatic of the era. My feelings are better than your facts, and I just hope it's out the way so that the owner, the who will be the former owner, can concentrate on his um, shop high street portfolio. Because Newcastle in the last fifteen years, the nadir was when we had to call it the Sport Direct Stadium, which no one did. And it's it's. I know that there is. I, I can imagine that you don't shop at Sports Direct. I, t- I, well, I don't think I probably would anyway, <laughs> regardless of of, uh, of any feelings that I have towards Mike Ashley. But, uh, but, don't mention but, uh, his name. He who must not be sorry. named. <laughs> no, but, but, the, but the, the sports direct arena thing that that was sort of indicative of, of, of the depth of the of the dislike towards Mike Ashley because you've got sorry he who must not be named because you've got the bigger things like the the, the relationship with Keegan deteriorating. Him ignoring Alan Shearer and still not, you know, talking about maybe hiring Alan Shearer permanently after the first relegation and just completely ignoring him after that. The Rafa Benitez uh, saga. There's big things like that, and then obviously not investing in the team and generally just a general decline. But the smaller things like that, you know, n- you know, taking, you know. Not not allow you know Alan Shearer's statue being on the outs- on the outskirts of St James's Park, not on the actual ground. Renaming the ground St James's Park, the um, Sports Direct Arena. There was also a weird spell where he tried to call it Sports Direct at St James's Park dot com, yeah. which is a real. So there's been two name changes, and there's little tiny things like that which didn't really make a, 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 an iota of difference to him really. It didn't, you know, he, he didn't have to do it. It just made it feel like he was doing it just to, just to be spiteful and to wind people up and and to play this role of pantomime villain, which is something he's described that that he is, and he has this amazing ability to, like, the odd time he does an interview, speak about how he is perceived, how he is sorry for everything that has gone before. He did it live on Sky just the day before Newcastle survived in 2015, the victory over West Ham. He did it again on Sky when Rafa Benitez was in charge. He did it in the Daily Mail again last year, where he talks, he tries to, he says it'll be different and I'll do things differently. I'm sorry for these mistakes. And he owns, sort of owns up to the mistakes and then carries on making the same mistakes. Yeah. People are just up to the point where, from the outside, it maybe looks, you know, forgetting the Bobby era and, you know, people will say, well, you know, clubs like Arsenal have dropped, Manchester United have dropped, and they're maybe clubs Newcastle. But, and you should be lucky that you're not in the position that Bolton are or Berry have been or even Sunderland, for example. But it doesn't really matter where Newcastle are if they're not 
striving for anything or representing anything or and that's sort of indicative of what Steve Bruce is. Can you could you tell me what Steve Bruce's football identity is, football philosophy is? I couldn't. He just kind of and that's kind of indicative of where Newcastle are. Yeah. Is that he sort of lurches from result to result trying to find a, a system that works or a or a or a way that works. He's apparently a really good defensive coach but I don't see. I see Newcastle regressing defensively from where they were. Meters. They weren't particularly good to watch for, for long spells under Benitez until Almiron came in. By the way, um, but under Benitez they were at least solid and dependable, and they could grind out results. Newcastle at the moment, I don't trust them to grind out that many results. Despite this idea that Bruce is supposedly a, a, a really defensively solid coach. Um, and that's generally, I think, where we're at with, with Newcastle alone is that they just exist to be, they just fulfil fixtures. They just exist to exist for existence' sake. Yeah, which um, is not, um, it's not healthy and it's not good because it's, yeah. no, if you've got nothing to look forward to, as we found in the last year, things get a bit more uh, Yeah, tedious. exactly. And this is where I feel sorry for Newcastle fans. There's a sort of middle ground when it comes to the takeover that you have, I think my stance is, Research the, the the atrocities of, of the Saudi regime and all that sort of thing, and the human rights, and be aware of that. But I also don't. I also don't think it's fair to just write them off and say, to just write off the takeovers. It shouldn't happen, and that's that. And then not mention anything about Newcastle. You know, everyone, so when the, the completely legitimate opposition to the takeover was was going on, they were just there was a lot of opposition to the Saudi takeover. But there was nothing really beyond that of what happens after for Newcastle. So when Newcastle, so when it all goes, it's all gone. If it all goes away and it doesn't happen, great. The the Saudis have been denied a, a spot in in the Premier League, if that's what you believe. But then what happens to Newcastle? And and what we're seeing is a club that never really cared anyway. But because Mike Ashley has decided he wants to sell the club, and that's under no no doubt now, and he wants to sell to the Saudis, he's kind of checked out the club is on autopilot even more beyond than it was before and it's just sort of ticking over and we're at the point where you know you say that Newcastle won't go down but the six points it was ten points to Fulham um, before their key striker in Callum Wilson is injured yeah they look like they, they're struggling to I know the, the, the results and the performances have been slightly better with Windsor or Everton and Southampton so it is slightly better than it was but they are 17th it can't be taken for granted uh, that they stay up. And this time, having escaped, and maybe Mike Ashley believes he's, because he's got them promoted, they put promoted twice, as well as relegated twice under his watch, maybe he believes he's cracked it. But the truth is that if Newcastle gets to the point where, back in the Championship, having been so close to a new dawn, whether you agree with that ethically or morally or not, in this case, doesn't really matter. The fact is that there was a pot that there was a possibility that there was a pot of a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and suddenly it, you could be looking at being back to square one, where you've seen what's happened to Sunderland, who are pretty much in exactly the same sort of situation with an owner that didn't really understand, didn't really care, different circumstances, but didn't understand all the same. Didn't, and, and that's what's happened to them. They are now not just in League One, they're now in their third season in League One and not looking all that likely to come. They're not storming the league this season. So there's no guarantee that, that Newcastle survive 
if they go down this season and, and, and then they could be you know they, they've sort of hovered around and sort of fixed fixed the sort of whack-a-mole attitude where they if a problem comes up they put a plaster over it and move on and then another one comes up and they've managed more or less without striving for anything they've managed more or less to a complete crisis but they keep dallying with that and that's the problem so it's, it's one thing to say that they're not existing they're not existing for any reason which is also true but they're, they're also steering close to danger again and there's no guarantee that they'll come out of it I think the, the thing that will save you is that you've got West Brom still to come in fact uh, the week before this goes out uh, you have Sheffield United at home and Fulham away and both of those clubs might be relegated and playing for pride by that time the four matches you've got in the interim, uh, United away, Man United away, Wolves at home, West Brom away and Villa at home. Uh, realistically, six points out of 12 is fine there. And it's just a matter of mini leagues and, and, that, and that. But yes, as we speak, you're quite right. You are hovering six points above Fulham. But if you beat Fulham and Sheffield United, if you bargain that that happens, uh, it will be just the case of three worst teams going down. It was very helpful beating Southampton the other week. But it's the performances as well. And I'm reading this book, Black and White Knight, about Sir Bobby Robson, Sir Bobby Robson, um, who was knighted while he was manager of the club. So one day he was Bobby and then he became Sir Bobby. And, um, yeah. and we will talk about that in the second half. But people of, your, of our generation who remember that era and the Keegan era... It's just the, the hope of everything. And if Newcastle don't have the hope, what is the point? Uh, at least Sunderland have hope because they've got new owners and um, yeah. a new manager who will hopefully guide them out of the, of the third tier. But yeah. with the, I've been to St. James's Park. I went to watch Newcastle play Watford in 2009. Great stadium. The away fans were completely up in the gods, as Warren Barton does say, I think, in the book. Um, yeah. But when you go to St. James's Park, I think um, maybe I'll phrase it like this. What is a club in any case? Not the buildings or the directors or the people paid to represent it, not the television contracts, get out clauses, marketing departments or executive boxes. You're right. I use that quote that's from uh, Bobby's last book, Newcastle, uh, My Kind of Tune, which is ghostwritten by George Colkin, who writes the forward. I use that quote because... It's, it's sort of double meaning currently because fans can't get into the ground. Yeah. So they can't even experience, even if Newcastle were this club that they were, they couldn't experience it anyway. But it's double meaning for Newcastle because they're just existing and not trying to be anything beyond an entity, a, a, a business, something that just ticks along. And what Newcastle, Newcastle of all clubs and and it's different, slightly different. I know everyone has a go at Liverpool for saying this means more. I get that. And Newcastle fans don't care about their club more than Watford fans care about theirs or Coventry fans care about theirs or anyone else. But the city is, it, I think I call it a life support machine. It literally, it, the result matters to the mood of the city on the week, the week later. You'll come out of St James's Park and someone who doesn't care about football will ask you the result because they know that if the city, if, the, if there's a win, then the Saturday night is going to be bouncing, the, the week is going to be with a spring and a step, and everything's going to be a little bit better. If they lose, then the opposite. And that was the, that's the case under 
under Keegan, under Robson, under Hullet, under Dalbeach, under Grandroder, under Sam Allardyce, under Rafa, under Steve Bruce, it doesn't matter. But they have to try and do something else. And for me to remember the Bobby years going as a young child, I was six years old when my dad first taught me, um, and I had a season ticket. I was up in the gods as well, level seven, Melbourne stand. So I did the seven flights of stairs that you did in 2009. Oh, it was um, so tedious. And it, it's tiring and it's tedious. But, you know, and I, I, it's, it's a common thing among, new, among visiting fans that they complain about it. I understand why. So you see that, that quote about, you know, the bit in Bobby's quote where he talks about grasping the hand of his father's hand and walking and seeing the green stretch of turf. It's all true, isn't it? but it, it must be difficult for a young kid now knowing that, okay, I mean, it doesn't matter to a young kid, it's still football, it's still Newcastle United, but it must. But it was different then because you knew that you were in Europe in the midweek and you knew you, that Barcelona or Juventus or Inter or Dino Kirchfein or Marseille, PSV Eindhoven, they were all coming to town and it was worth... You know, it felt like you were connected on different levels than, than now, I think. And it doesn't, you don't have to, you can't expect anything. No, nobody, Manchester United fans, I, I, I disagree with the idea that Manchester United fans and Arsenal fans can't complain about where they are because they're still fairly in a decent position. In comparison to where they were, they've fallen very fast. So they have, and it, no, nobody can tell a Man United fan that they can't be upset that they're no longer winning titles. But at the same time, no, no club is, is guaranteed anything. No club has a divine right to win anything. So you can't expect Newcastle to be back in the Champions League. But you can expect them to try and get as close as physically possible. You see Leicester as a club that are they do not have rich owners or specific, you know rich on the level of Man City, yeah. Chelsea, PSG. That everyone says you need to be to, to compete these days. They do not have rich owners. They have a manager that has a plan. They have a recruitment system that works they can sell and buy and this is what I mean about buying young players and things that are not buying Bobby not buying a player for over, for over 10 million is he bought and Charlie was his chief scout they unearthed these players and they found these players and they went and bought them and then they made them into superstars within the sort of bubble of Newcastle and managed to keep hold of them sort of the same thing that Leicester have done look at James Madison when he came from Norwich. He cost twenty five million, but Manchester United were knocking the door for him at Norwich. They Manchester United would love James Madison now. Yuri Tielemans as well is another one that Amazing uh, signings. Amazing player. And, and to be fair, Yuri Tielemans is slightly different in that I think most clubs probably would have taken him from Monaco. But when now he's at Leicester, I think for me he is the best player outside of the big six, which is mental to say that because Leicester finished fifth last season. Big six the big six doesn't exist because of Leicester. But Leicester are an example, just one example of how it can go. Wolves are another one. These are the clubs that Newcastle should be looking to emulate, yeah. not Manchester, not Arsenal. And it's not too, it's not wrong to suggest that. It's not out of, you know, because because they've done it in a way that even Mike Ashley could do it. This is the point I make in the book, that, that the way Bobby put a plan in place, a transfer strategy in place, proves that money wasn't everything to him. It doesn't have to be everything now. You can have, a, you can find more St. Maxims, more Almorons. But the problem with Newcastle is that they find one and then the plan is just to develop them and sell them on and then not move forward as a club. Whereas Leicester will only sell when they 
have to at the highest price and then they'll reinvest the money while also buying other players at the same time. It sort of works like clockwork, whereas Newcastle don't do that. That's where you've got the problem with Mike Ashley. There's no desire to just to, to move forward with it. It's just a pure desire of we'll get some maximum for £16 million. We'll sell him for 50 Hypothetically, that's what they want. They, it's, it, it's crazy that they, they spent £40 million on Joe Linton thinking they could probably turn that into 60 That's probably what they thought. That's the only reason they went for that. They were convinced of that for some bizarre reason. But that's... that. But, so the difference, I think the difference between Leicester and Newcastle is that Leicester will buy a player and think, maybe if, if we have to sell them, we'll, we'll sell them for double the price. But it's only if we have to sell them. Newcastle's desire is bring a player in, we will sell them for double the price. That's the aim. And, that's the, and, that's, and, and there's no like point to anything else. There's no there's way of challenging. I mean, you could make an argument. It's slightly different. I don't think, that, I don't think this, this is a fair argument now, but you could make an argument that, that Harry Maguire, it's not guaranteed, it's, it's not 100% certainty that Harry Maguire has made the right choice leaving Leicester for Manchester United. Whereas if anyone leaves Newcastle, they have 100% made the right choice. <laughs> and, well, and that's all to do with the inward attitude. And there is so much potential for Newcastle to, to succeed because of the way Bobby did it, Keegan did it. They only did it because they connected the fans to the club. That's the only thing they did, really, at the base of it. And then they were backed in certain different ways. Keegan was able to, to, to bring in some, some players that... I mean, you could only dream of. I mean, I know Algier was a Geordie, but it's still pretty incredible that they managed to get probably the best striker, you know, certainly the best English striker, the best striker in the Premier League to come. Arguably, yeah. at the time, one of the, probably at, the, at that very moment, because of what happened at Euro 2096, he probably was the best striker in the world. To be able to, that, that, but, that, but the, the base of it, that comes to, from just a willingness and attitude. Keegan wants, when Newcastle were promoted in 1993, he says, to Sir Alex Ferguson, we're coming for your title. It mm. sounds ridiculous now, but at the time, but they proved that it's possible. You don't have to even do that now. You just say, we're going to aim for the top eight. That's what Benitez did. And everyone backed him to the hill because he offered something different to what Newcastle as a current guys do. And that's kind of the point of the book is that Bobby Robson led them into something different from where just, they were. Just to break before the halftime break, I didn't realise, or maybe I'd forgotten, that Newcastle effectively had a gazump clause. I love the phone call saying, Man, you have come in 15 million quid. You've got to match yeah. this bid and you'll have him. Yeah. Because Ferguson, who just won the double, really wanted Shearer. In the end, he had to content himself with Dwight York and then Teddy Sheringham uh, and David Beckham came good. But this book, uh, which we'll talk about more in the second half, is Black and White Night. Uh, and it's a biography of Bobby Robson by Harry D. Is it Cosimo? Yeah, that's perfect. 